0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, good morning everybody. So good. Gl- wow, good morning everybody. There we go. Good morning. So glad you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Good morning to everyone up in Port Perry and everyone anywhere else in the world. We're so glad that you're joining us. And uh, we are continuing in this very exciting, difficult, challenging series called The Sent Ones out of First Corinthians. And if you've got a Bible this morning, virtual, physical, in any way, if you can open it up, we're going to be in First Corinthians chapter 6 today. As I was preparing for this message this week, I was thinking about the word sacrifice and how much genuinely sa- genuine sacrifice changes so much. There are small moments or small or large decisions that can lead to good, to change, to life actually for other people. One sacrifice by one person can lead to the benefit of a person, a family, a community, or a nation. When a soldier genuinely dies for their country, Trying to stop an invading force and gives up everything they are, not only for family, but for strangers. If you truly think about it, it is shocking and amazing they would do such a thing. When a family immigrates to a new country and parents choose or grandparents choose to do a job their whole lives that they hate or not inspired by or doesn't fit their personality, but they do it so their children and their grandchildren, who they may or may not meet, can have a better life than they wanted. When you really actually think about that act, that sacrifice, that non-selfish expression is nothing but amazing because in the end, they die and the life they want, someone else gets later. Now, the most ultimate expression of this in history is actually not Jesus choosing to come from heaven to earth that we're about to celebrate in the Christmas story. It's not even found in the Easter event. It's actually found just before it. When you really think about sacrifice, it's the mo- moment in the garden It's the moment of pain and question and confusion when Jesus, just before he was about to go to the cross, started to struggle with why he had come. He genuinely had an honest struggle with the outworking of his calling and his identity. He struggled with what to love more. Just before the cross event, Jesus uttered these very, very shocking and comforting words to all of us in Mark 14. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Then he said these words, Abba, Father, Dad... Everything is possible with you, right? Because he's God. Would you take this cup from me? In other words, I really actually am not sure if I want to die on the cross. And then he utters these famed words, yet not what I will, but what you will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is fulfilling what he has taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's prayer. If you read the Lucan account of this, it says that the encounter was so intense that Jesus was so in angst and in prayer, he actually sweat blood as he was doing this. Now here's the question we need to ask beyond all the churchiness and sort of the veneer of this conversation. What really made Jesus do this? Was it just duty? Was it sheer obedience? Was it fear of an out-of-control, vindictive father upstairs? Well, no, the father is not like that. Was he just motivated by his job description alone? No. Jesus chose to do this. Jesus goes to the cross because he loved the father more than his safety. He loved the Father more than his life. He loved the Father more than his comfort. If you've grown up in church your whole life or part of your life, you've heard your whole life that Jesus loves you a lot. And by the way, it's true. I'm not going to say that's not true this morning. But actually what we miss is this. Jesus loves the Father more than he loves you. Jesus has always loved his dad more than he loves us oh he loves us but he loves the father more and it was that love that greater love more perfect love that larger love that more persuading love that actually led Jesus to do the great things he did which we all benefit from that is the essence of Jesus's life that is the epicenter of his identity and here's the connection it is the same for us If you actually call yourself a Christian here this morning, genuine Christian, follower of Christ, then our identity, our willingness to follow Jesus, our willingness actually to suffer, to be uncomfortable, to be distinctly different than the city that we love and live in must be rooted in a love for Jesus like Jesus' love was for the Father, a greater love, a more perfect love, a larger love, a more persuading love than our rights, a greater love than our wants, a greater love even than our decision or sin. So as we as a church are now entering into this very real conversation out of 1 Corinthians of how to be different, in the city that we love, how to be different than the friends and neighbors that we love, but are not Christians. When being a sent one, when being a pilgrim and pioneer begins to cost us genuinely, remember why. Why do we do this? For who do we do this? Is there a love that is greater than our comfort or our life that would lead us to this place? In other words, are we Christians in name only, or are we actually imitating Jesus in the garden? And that is the thing we need to have in our mind this morning as we dive back into 1 Corinthians as we're working out these incredibly difficult issues. Remember, Paul has been working out day in and day out what it means to look like a Christian, what it means to look like a sent one, to actually be a follower of Christ in a great urban city that is multicultural and pluralistic and sexually diverse and full of money and education. And he's been teaching us week in and week out that actually, though we can love our city and we're called to be part of our city and we're not trying to avoid our city, actually, we need to look more like heaven than our city while we live in it. Now, Paul, it's like he's talking to his first audience says, okay, let's just keep trying to sort all these issues out. Because at this moment, this ancient church is broken, fractured, and ineffective. He says, let's talk about actually how we respond when one Christian wrongs you. And actually, let's see how we don't deal with it. How we deal with family issues is not to reflect the cultural values of our city. We are not to embrace the brokenness of our city. And actually, we are not to embrace the sin of our city. We are supposed to do this, not my will, but your will be done. And Paul says, actually, there's another issue that's actually bleeding out the church that if we talk about it will give us opportunity for freedom and healing. He says this in 1 Corinthians six one: If any one of you has a dispute with another, Uh, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Now, in this case, just so you know, there is a dispute, and the dispute is a lawsuit. There is at least one lawsuit going on between two people in this local church, and as we're about to see, one person has stolen and defrauded money from another. So something has already gone terribly wrong in church that people are stealing from each other. Now, we live in a culture that loves a good public fight. Though we would never ever want to go to a gladiatorial game today to see people massacre each other, on social media our culture is obsessed and enjoys watching people destroy each other all the time virtually. But it's not just virtually, we also absolutely love a good court battle. You just think about it. We see it all the time. We see it in the news. Try watching one newscast this week of any form and see if a lawyer or a judge or a court case is not mentioned. It will not happen. It is at the epicenter of our public conversation. But we also love a good court case because of what we consume on television. You know what a culture likes by what it watches, how many of our comedies and how many of our dramas and how many of our reality t- sh- TV shows center around lawyers and the court? How many of you used to have your popcorn and your cheese whiz on toast and watch Judge Judy tell the people how stupid they were and to get out of her court? Millions of people watched it and thought it was hilarious, but Why? All of us watch things like Bull or Law and Order 1 through 1 Million, I Can't Keep Up, you know, The Ongoing, or The Practice, or Boston Legal, or Suits. And any of you like that are Netflix junkies, that's a different sermon. Uh, The Good Wife, How to Get Away with Murder, not so Christian. If you're from another generation, you used to watch Perry Mason. Does anyone remember that at all? Oh, yeah. Mm. All right, yes. All right. Or if I think this one is still one of the best in all of history, Matlock was still awesome. L.A. Law, Blue Bloods, Jag, Night Court. It goes on and on. See, we we love this stuff. Yet if you sit back and look at the content of all those shows, and if you actually listen to the genuine content of what goes on week in and week out on the news, found in lawsuits and court cases, it does not feel Christian at least, at in the least. And that's Paul's point. Now if you look at that verse this morning and you see that word judgment, in the original context it reads judgment seat, and this really matters. The judgment seat was a literal place. It was like a local courthouse where a local judge or magistrate would actually give judgment on issues. But here's the kicker. This judgment seat and the proceeding that happened around it took place in the marketplace in the middle of town where all the shops and all the businesses were located. In other words, in our culture, it would be like the local courthouse was in the middle of Pickering Town Center or Oshawa Town Center for everyone to see. And so you have this public court case taking place and it's being done in in front of the whole city. We have an unresolved womb and this escalating nasty lawsuit is happening between two followers of Jesus in front of the city. This would be like two modern Christian leaders today attacking each other over Twitter while millions of people are watching and going, it's not such a big deal. It's actually like Christians going on Facebook all the time, spewing so much garbage, and not realizing and forgetting that all their non-Christian friends are watching how you act on social media and go, well, obviously, they're not any different than me, because look at how they speak and treat people online. Paul says, are you joking me? You're actually having a lawsuit between two Christians in public in front of the whole city, and yet at the same time, you're telling the city that they need to accept Jesus Christ? Now notice that Paul calls the people outside ungodly. Does this mean that the court system was corrupt? Does this mean that Christians should never use the legal system or we should be suspicious of it? No. Paul in the book of Acts time and time again actually called on the legal system. This is what Paul is saying. How in the world could you be doing this in front of non-Christians? And notice if you see carefully the language of Paul, he is incredibly angry. How dare you do this? By suing each other in open court, this action boldly proclaims that the work of Jesus Christ, which you claim has changed your life, is not healing enough, not powerful enough to cover sin. Actually, you preach forgiveness, except you do not give forgiveness, and your relationships are not changed. So actually, what you've done is you have forgotten your Lord, you've forgotten your identity, and your money and your rights and your humiliation or pride have become more powerful than your love for Jesus and your love for you. Other. In other words, you don't believe in the idea of not my will, but your will be done. Why in the world would you not bring this before Christians in the church? Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are the judge of the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge the angels? How much more the things of this life? Now, Paul, when he writes this, a lot of us say, well, what in the world's going on? Well, he dimly lets us see a very real coming future. He's quoting actually Daniel 7, And all we know is this, that when the end times come, Christians will be involved helping Jesus judge the world and fallen angels. But don't misunderstand Paul. He's not actually saying when he says it's trivial, that this issue is not big or not serious. He's saying in the light of real judgment, in the light of the end of the world, this is so trivial. He says, therefore, if you have dispute about such matters... Do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Again, by the way, don't misunderstand Paul. Paul is not saying you shouldn't respect judges or lawyers or you should not cherish or defend good law. That's not what he's saying at all. Listen to what he wrote to the church in Rome at the epicenter of the legal world of Rome. He said this in Romans thirteen five. Therefore, it is necessary if you're a Christian to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. In other words, he says every single Christian is supposed to be an unbelievable citizen. Obey the law, remain productive, always pay your taxes, stop at red lights, don't steal, don't invade another person's privacy, don't rob banks. Why? Well, number one, we find out as Christians, when we obey the law that is good, it is worship to God. And also, Paul simply says this, also, when you obey the law, you don't hurt the testimony of Jesus, and if you don't obey the law, then you end up in court, and you actually deal with fines, or you go to jail, and your work for Christ is actually removed. So he says you should respect the law and obey the system, and by the way, that includes the courts, but he says this, let me ask this to you again, if you have dispute on such matters, why are you asking for a, for a ruling for those whose way of life is scorned in the church? In other words, the judge and the values of the judge and the values of the city and the starting point and the lens and the perspective and the judgments are not found in God's word. Our starting point as Christians is completely different than theirs. Our unity is totally different. Those local magistrates don't care about church unity. Those judges don't give a rip about Jesus or his testimony being undone by your public legal fight. They don't share God the Father's election. They haven't embraced Jesus. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't worship. They don't go to connect with you. They don't take communion with you. They're not family. Now I say this to shame you, he writes. Is it possible that there is nobody among you, wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. He says, shame on you. This is actually outrageous. Now, he pulls no punches, and he says, isn't there a wise person among you? Now, if you've been doing this series with us, you'll know what he's saying. Remember, this church had an arrogance problem. They thought they were so amazing and so spiritual and so in tune with Jesus because they could speak in tongues and they could cast out demons and they could heal the sick and everything was about the spirit, spirit, spirit. And Paul comes along and says, you think that you're so wise because of all these gifts and you think you're so wise because you're a better preacher than I am. But actually, you are not in tune with God because you can't even find one wise, educated person to deal with this little dispute. In other words, you're not superior. You're not amazing spiritually. Actually, you're in terrible shape. He says, instead, one brother takes another to court, and this is done in front of unbelievers. You are discrediting the good news, the gospel. Now, I caught this this week in studies, and here it is. Many scholars point out that in this time, in this city, in this culture, the court system was used to establish your reputation It was used to, as a vehicle to establish your honor. It was a way to get ahead. It was a way to publicly shame or hurt your enemies and also get easy, quick money. Sound familiar? Like half the stuff we see in our culture. And Paul comes along and says, that is not from our kingdom. That is not from our side. We do not publicly humiliate or use the courts to hurt anybody. Now, Paul stops talking to the whole church and he focuses in on the two people that are actually taking each other to court and suing each other. Now, he first starts talking to the person who actually has been sinned against, the person who was stolen from. And he says in verse 7, the very fact that you have a lawsuit among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Now, he starts by saying, look, the whole church is defeated. No matter who wins this court case, we've already all lost. This action will produce such broken results. How do you come to church now? How, How do you take communion now? How do you sing songs of worship together? How do you do connect group together? The injury is so serious. Now, in our culture, we go, no problem. I'm just going to walk down the street to Calvary Baptist. I'm just going to walk down the street to people's church. Well, Jesus is there too, and that's not very helpful because those leaders have to deal with you later. But it's deeper than that. At this time, there is only one church. There is no other place to go. We've already been defeated. Our community and the good news of Jesus now appears conquered and crushed, and overcome. And it is obvious to everyone outside who is not a Christian that there is no real life-changing power in the gospel because you know that something changes a human being when it changes how you speak to another human being. And since you don't speak any different than anyone else, obviously your gospel is no different than Zeus or atheism. And then Paul says it. Why not be wronged? Why not rather be cheated When's the last time someone said that to you when you got masked? It's okay. Get cheated. It's a good thing. Now, those two last statements feel incredibly uncomfortable, and they corner us, and, and inside every one of us, no matter how spiritual you are this morning, you say, no, I can tell you a thousand reasons why. I lost money. I lost face. It was wrong. It's my reputation. It's not fair. And Paul says, oh, I'm not disagreeing. Everything that you're feeling is right, but why don't you choose to be wronged anyway? Why don't you choose to be cheated anyway? Why don't you suffer anyway? Why don't you die to your rights anyway? Actually, why don't you say, not my will, not my rights, but yours be done? In other words, would you be willing to be cheated or wrong so the gospel actually doesn't get destroyed and people spend eternity with Jesus? What's more important? Your lawsuit or the gospel? Your lawsuit or unity in the church? Your rights or Jesus's will? One scholar said Jesus was defrauded of what was rightfully his to give us what we never deserved. If Christ absorbed all our wrongs, if he absorbed all our attacks, if he absorbed all our rejection, then we must do the same. We can actually start practicing gospel memory in place of gospel amnesia. This is what forgiveness is all about, right? We don't simply just demand justice, and we don't simply just hand out grace. Because of the work of Jesus, justice and grace meet perfectly. And the church ought to be the one place on earth where people can glimpse the beautiful balance of justice and grace together. I can imagine the person sitting in church like this. Fine. Fine. Yeah, sure, sure. I'll obey Jesus. And I still want to take the guy to court, but now you say I cannot and I need to be like Jesus. Fine, but he's still getting away with my money and he's still getting away with my reputation and it's not fair and fill in the blank. And Paul says, oh, Oh, I'm not done the conversation yet. I'm shaming you because you weren't even willing to consider forgiveness. I'm shaming you because you never even considered the gospel before you acted. And then he turns his sights on the other person. And he says, Oh, (laughs) to you who did the cheating, how in the world could you do this to a fellow Christian? How could you actually, in your mind, cook up a plan where you actually think it's okay to defraud anyone, to steal, to break the Ten Commandments, let alone do it against another brother or sister? Why do you look like everyone else who doesn't know Jesus? You yourself cheat and you do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and your sisters. Now, if you've been with us, you understand that last week connects to this week. And what Paul has already said is this, that if a brother or sister sins against you, Way before you go to court, and way before you get to lawsuits, and way before you declare war on Twitter, there is a process we are all called to follow called biblical reconciliation. And Paul alludes to this that we went through last week, and Jesus explicitly walks through it. Remember Matthew eighteen fifteen: If your brother or sister sins, you go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, you take two or three others along. Every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, you go tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, then you treat them like a pagan and a tax collector. In other words, you remove them from guaranteed places of meeting. And here's Paul's point in this context. They skipped all of this. They went from you cheated, no I didn't, yes you did, to the court and skipped all of Jesus' instruction of how to actually do reconciliation together. Now I want to remind everyone this morning again, like I said last week, these did not exist 2,000 years ago. Not everyone was walking in with their leather-bound Bible, nor did you version exist. And so remember, when these were sent to churches, these letters were read in public, and so I guarantee you that morning, that Sunday morning, when they were gathered together and someone opened this new letter, this scroll, this, this parchment paper, parchment paper from Paul, when it was being read, the two men are sitting in the church and so are their families. And of course, so are all their allies. Cause you know how this goes, right? Well, I've been wronged. I'm going to tell my 15 other people. So they got my back. So I'm, right. So now Paul starts doing this and he rebukes one of them for not even willing to actually suffer or forgive, and he rebukes the other one for stealing. And he says, look, this has got got to end. You need to give forgiveness. And by the way, if you don't repent, I'm not pointing to you, it's all good. If you don't repent, then actually you're going to get kicked out of the church. Now I can imagine the rest of the church going, whew, man, that was Diego and Doug's fight. It's not mine. I skipped the bullet. That's awesome. And Paul goes, actually this terrible lawsuit allows me to speak to everyone. And everyone's like, oh. He's like, no, it's good, sort of. He says, let's have a larger conversation. Let's actually take the lawsuit issue, which is wrong, and now we know what to do. And let's have the bigger conversation that the whole church needs to have. We're the people of God, right? We're followers of Jesus in Corinth in Toronto, right? We're actually pilgrims and pioneers connected to a city that's about to come. And yet we're called to love the city we're living in. And then he says this, don't any of us make the mistake, don't you make the mistake of downplaying or misunderstanding this sin or any sin? Oh yeah, you love your family and you love your friends and you love your city and you hang out and you do life, and, but never, ever, 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 ever believe that sin isn't serious. Sin is so serious that it actually cannot mark a local church or a Christian. Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Don't lie to yourself. Don't con yourself. Don't say, well, it's not that bad. It is. Wrongdoers don't inherit eternal life. Wrongdoers don't inherit the kingdom of God wrongdoers don't walk into the space or place where the reign and rule of God the Father is welcomed and accepted through Jesus. If they don't want Jesus' relationship and lordship on earth, they're not going to want it in the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth will not have any of the activities I'm about to mention, Paul says. There are only two kinds of people. Those who know God through Jesus here who will know him more there, and those who actually do not know God through Jesus here and will not know him here. As I've preached before, God ratifies our relationship towards him, which we've chosen in this life and that life. If we know God now, we enter to a greater experience then. If we don't know him now, we won't know him then. Heaven and hell are not about reward and punishment. They're the logical outcome of our relationship with God here. As I've quoted before, this great, great, great statement by John Hanna, no one who's ever going to be in hell will be able to say to God, you put me here. And no one who's in heaven will ever be able to say, I put myself here. Now Paul says the warning is real. Don't lie, don't con con yourself. Don't say things aren't what they aren't. Do not think God is okay with sin. Don't say things aren't that bad or actually certain sins are really bad and some are not. No, no. Don't say, well, I accepted Jesus when I was three and I wrote on a piece of paper, but there's no evidence of life change. Don't think you're a Christian. If there is not evidence, you're not. Do you not know? The wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slandered, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, no one get up and yell yet. Just hold on. Notice each phrase. Each phrase is not just an action. If you understand what Paul's saying, each phrase is an identity marker. It marks the city and marks the individual. Now we talked about this last week, we're going to talk about it next week, not because we're obsessing on this, this is where the scriptures go. The word sexually immoral is that word, remember porneia, it's where we get our modern word pornography from. It was a catch-all phrase for Orthodox Jews that summarized what God had said was wrong sexually in the Old Testament. When a Jew would see that phrase in their language, whether Hebrew or the transliteration in Greek, it included incest premarital sex, adultery, one-night stands, same-sex activity, prostitution, molestation, bestiality, orgies, and the like. For biblical writers, not our culture, maybe not you, but for the biblical writers, I'm just giving you what the Bible says. The sexual starting point is Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. Now Paul chooses to bring up adultery very specifically because it was rampant in Corinth and accepted as normal. He also brings up same-sex activity because Corinth was world famous for that. And it found three forms. There was one thing in Roman culture where older men would sleep with younger men and it was accepted. There was a vast prostitution experience going on in Corinth, and also there was long-term same-sex relationships in Corinth. And Paul comes along and says, "Look, no matter how it's working out, in God's eyes, it's wrong." Now, notice this isn't orientation, this is activity. And he comes along and says, it doesn't matter in what direction, if you continually live your life in porneia, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, oh, by the way, it's not just about sex. Let's talk about religion. He says, those who are idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those who are sincere and worship multiple other gods. Remember, Corinth is a multicultural, pluralistic Roman city. And he says, if you worship any other god except the God of Israel found through Jesus by the Spirit, you're an idolater. If you religiously watch that and or if you place anything in front of God, in other words, if your lifestyle is, is more important than God, if your rights are more important, whatever you place in front of God, that's idolatry. And he says, it's not just religious sin and it's not just sexual sin. Let's talk about monetary sin. If your life is marked by greed, that is money and getting money is the heart of your life, then you'll love money more than God. And if you know someone who is greedy, or you once were full of greed, or you are full of greed, you know that people who struggle with greed will steal and lie and covet and fudge the numbers and do illegal things and will destroy people's lives and reputations to get ahead. Jesus says this very directly, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Paul says it's not just that, it's also slander. If you are a person regularly involved in libel, if if your mouth is marked by gossip, if your job or life is always about destroying other people, be warned. He says, if you're partying all times, all night, high or drunk all the time, you are marked by drunkenness, be warned. He says, if you're a swindler and a thief, if you're regularly cheating people out of money or reputation or assets, be warned. Now, all of us are sitting here today going, hold on a second, well, that's me. Actually, that's all of us. There's not one item on this list that we have not as a church right now, all of us sitting here, participated in more than once. So are you saying, John, that's it? I've done it once, I'm out, fired. No. All of us as Christians struggle, no doubt about it. Every one of us wander, no doubt about it. And yet, we who are Christians have now encountered the mercy of God through Jesus, and we now choose, and we know that though we struggle, we no longer build our identity in the list above. We do not celebrate the list above. We do not relish or affirm what God has saved us from. And yet, if you're a person here this morning who is a Christian by title, and yet persistent rebellion marks your life, you must ask yourself the question Am I truly a Christian? If you are a Christian this morning, and you actually keep saying that actually that list above isn't wrong, and Jesus is okay with it, you need to be warned this morning. That is not what God says. Now, the people in Corinth, and the people in Toronto, and many of you, and almost all of our neighbors and friends would say what Paul wrote here is unloving, Hateful, dangerous, intolerant, not sustainable, not logical, and not helpful. Why would anyone give up their rights? Why would anyone give up a long term relationship in any direction? Why would anyone give up premarital sex? Why would anyone actually be okay with being defrauded? Why would anyone give up their litigation rights? Why would anyone stop doing anything from above? Oh, and I want to admit it this morning. It is crazy, unlogical, weird, and bizarre unless, unless you have met and you have encountered a greater love that would actually lead you to say, not my will, not my rights, not my wants, but your will on earth as it is in heaven. And see, this is what Paul's point is. Because Paul's whole life is rooted in Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus' whole life is rooted in actually obeying someone else and loving someone else. And Paul says, that's why we now need to go back to the beginning. That's why we need to go back to what I started with in this book. I need to remind you, if you are a Christian, and I want to stop and say this this is written to Christians, not to our culture. Paul says, and this or in that is what some of you were. Now, this doesn't mean we don't struggle, this doesn't mean we don't feel pulled. This doesn't mean we don't sin sometimes. This doesn't mean orientation changes. What this now means is if you are a genuine follower of Jesus in Corinth, in Durham, in Toronto, in Port Perry, wherever you're living, then your identity is now fully rooted in Jesus, not in money. In Jesus, not in sexuality. In Jesus, not in power. In Jesus, not in status. In Jesus, do you see what he's saying? He says the core of our identity is actually found in Christ. That is what some of you used to do. But now you are washed and sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now, that phrase, but you... Is so critical. That is actually written over the doorpost of every single Christian on earth. It is the status update of every single Christian. It is actually the best description of what we are becoming and what we are. It is used time and time again. Anytime you see in the New Testament the phrase, but you, but now you are, write it down because that is what your identity is. You have been washed. You have been made clean. You are sanctified. You are holy. You are good with God. You are a saint. You, You are justified. You have legal standing before a holy God through Jesus. In other words, here's what's Paul saying. Be what you truly are, not what you used to be. Theology and Christianity for Paul is not some textbook deal or a Sunday morning deal and the rest of the six days look different. No, it's worked out in the tension of real life, in relationships with money, sex, and power. And here's Paul's point. Right encounter with Jesus leads to right thinking, which leads to right life. One tweeted out years ago, history should be learned from, not lived in. And here's what Paul is saying. We are now members of another kingdom, for real. Our identity is no longer in what we used to celebrate, for real. Our identity is no longer in what our culture says is right or is celebrated in. Our identity and our rights and everything are bound to Jesus Christ. Now let me work out what this passage is not saying this morning. This passage is not saying that everything stays within the church family. In other words, hear this closely embezzlement, sexual misconduct, sexual abuse, anything like that, murder, the authorities are called immediately, period. This is not actually to be used as an excuse to keep secrets. Forgiveness also doesn't mean we don't protect the innocent. Second, this is actually not calling us to mistrust the court system. Like I said, Paul used it again and again. This is also not telling us what to do legally if actually there is no common starting point between a Christian and a non-Christian. This also does not address what you do between a person and a corporation. This also does not tell us what to do after a Christian has followed Matthew 18 and a person has been removed from the church context, can you then take them to court? It's silent on the issue. This passage is also not saying if you struggle with sin, then you're lost forever. This passage is not saying that if you doubt or you have wanderings, you're not allowed in church. But what this passage is saying is something way more significant, way more radical, and actually incredibly Christian. It is calling for a radical, different life with and under Jesus. We live in a culture of rights. We live in a culture also that loves to sue. We live in a litigation-based society, and much of litigation is done for greed, and to humiliate and to publicly kill other people, or even to get easy money. And Paul says, no, no, that actually might be how our culture functions, but we within the church do not do this any longer. We will use reconciliation in the church to repair our relationships. We'll be incredibly cautious about the legal system, and also we will have honest conversations about sin. This week I was reading, and I found an amazing quotation from Anthony Scalia. Anthony Scalia was one of the top Supreme Court justices in the United States, a devout Roman Catholic who actually just died in the last few years. love him or hate him. One of the best quotes I've ever heard is him speaking on 1 Corinthians 6 as a Supreme Court justice, and I would say the most litigation-based society on earth, the United States. I think you blink down there and you sue someone, right? He said, "I says, I think that this passage has something to say about proper Christian attitudes towards civil litigation, Paul, this is him speaking, right? He says, Paul says that mediation through mutual friends like a parish priest should be sought out before parties run off to the law courts. I think we are far too ready to see vindication and vengeance through adversarial proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Here's the best quote ever. This is tweetable. Good Christians, just as they are slow to be angry, should be slow to sue. I was like, white hanky out. Yes. Slow to anger, slow to sue. Public litigation might be the last resort, but far before you actually declare war on someone else, you're called to follow what we learned last week about sin and disputes in a biblical reconciliation pattern. Slow to anger, slow to sue should be our call. And by the way, if you're a Christian here this morning and you're involved in preparing a litigation against another Christian, repent. You go through this before you get, and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. I was sitting with a pastor at another church this week. I won't mention the name of the church. And we were talking and he found out I was preaching on 1 Corinthians 6 and he smiled to me and he said, wow, he said, I've got an issue right in my church right now where two of my members are suing each other. And I took 1 Corinthians 6 to them and their response to me was, well, I have the Holy Spirit and he said I could do it. And then he said this, and then they said, well, Paul says it's a trivial matter and this isn't trivial to me don't misuse the scriptures to get away with sin. This is how we're different. You want to be different than Toronto? This is how we're different. This also brings up something else for all of us because this is real. This is an honest conversation. Forgiveness is costly. So is giving up our loves and our lives for the sake of the gospel. And Paul continually reminds us again and again that forgiveness has been extended to us in such a vast degree through Jesus by him saying, not my will, but your will, that we have to learn to do the same. Romans twelve 19, Don't take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But here's the real question for us, and this is what needs to linger across the church over the next week or so. This is actually what needs to be talked about in Connect Groups this week. Actually, this probably, this moment, is sort of the epicenter of the whole series. Because what Paul does in this very, very, very life-giving or offensive passage is he actually narrows down the conversation to what true Christianity actually is. Where will you live from? Where will your identity genuinely be rooted in? The call to forgive, the call to reconcile, the call to stop stealing, the call to deal with God's holiness and love, to be distinctly different than the GTA all comes down to your starting point. Not my will, but your will be done. Some of us are here today. You're here at Ajax. You're listening online. Some of you are up in Port Perry. And you're seething right now. Like you are angry. But I need to say to you, not just with all pastoral authority, just as a person, look, God is speaking, not me. Some of you need to repent today. And you need to admit what marks you in your life is called sin. God is your creator, and he is good, and he is trustworthy, and he is love. But he has the right to say what is right, and he has the right to say what is wrong. And some of you here today, whether you have the title Christian, or you're from another faith, or you're a skeptic or a seeker, here's what God is saying. God is saying it is actually this moment where he wants to call you out of darkness into light. He's actually inviting you to accept the love and mercy of Jesus. In other words, here's what he's inviting you to, to say yes to a a greater love, a, a greater freedom. See, here's how it works out. When you come to the end of yourself, when you come to the end of your rights, when you come to the end of your life, there is where you find grace, love, and unexpected freedom. Jesus said it this way to his original followers. Whoever wants to be my disciple, anyone who wants to be a Christian, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose their life, and whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus' love and his forgiveness and his mercy is sweeter, more fulfilling, and more satisfying than anyone else in your life, any right you have, any relationship you want or have been or are in, or anything you could steal by or own. In other words, here's what God is saying to you in this holy moment. come to Jesus and find life that is more satisfying than what you think satisfies you now. But to find life, you must give up your whole life to find it. I want you to sit with that if that's you this morning, because I will give you an opportunity in a minute to do this. Many of us are genuine Christians here today. And some of us this morning, I don't know who you are, need to repent. It's not salvific, but you need to repent. Why? Because you have taught and you have downplayed and you've not called sin, sin. You've actually said that certain things in the list above are fine and good and right and the Bible just got it wrong. No, you actually today need to lower yourself and say under God's mercy, I'm wrong. And actually I've rebelled by actually justifying things that I've been doing or others that have been doing and I need to ask forgiveness. Because God in the end is God and you are not. And so if you're a Christian here today and you know right now God is speaking to you and you know that actually you've called things that are evil good, repent. But here's how we'll end. All of us need the Holy Spirit to do something this morning after such a difficult passage. All of us need the Holy Spirit to bring us back to see Jesus clearly, to see his love and his beauty with such a consuming vision of Jesus that actually as we see him for who he truly is, we would actually begin to say as Christians, Jesus is actually enough. All of us in our walk with Jesus have things said things like this, Jesus, this is too hard. Jesus, this is too costly. Jesus, this is breaking who I am or where I want to go. And Jesus says, I know it's costly. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. We actually need the Holy Spirit, who is actually the Spirit of Christ, to come in such power that he not only shows us such a beautiful vision of Christ so we'd be willing to say no to things we love, but we also need the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of holiness and the spirit of truth, to sing, to say, to imprint, to tattoo into our thinking the truth of who we are. Because when we forget who we are and we forget what God has done, it is impossible to sacrifice the things of this world that look right. This is what we need to ask the Holy Spirit to do, that he would literally infuse in us as Christians this morning this truth. That is what some of us were, but we were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We are hoping, praying, asking, walking as a community, Asking Jesus to make C4 Church a genuine church that is marked by the Spirit and marked by the Word of God and loves the city and does not isolate ourselves from the city and yet truly is distinct. And this is what distinction looks like for the Christian life. So, no matter who you are and where you are, would you respond in some different ways would you prepare yourself to pray and I'll lead you today and then you can talk and work this through and wrestle through this and connect groups later this week would you do this up in Port Perry right now would you do this in any place you are Prince Edward Island or anywhere else that's listening so number one if you're a person who's never genuinely encountered Jesus Christ and you've heard this and it brought embarrassment or offense or anger but you're like I need something sweeter then you pray this I believe Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior I believe he died and rose again and I embrace his life and his will over mine. I repent of sin and I ask for eternal life. I now become a follower of Jesus Christ with all of its costs. Forgive me my sin, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. To others of you, you need to pray this prayer, Lord, because of shame or embarrassment or because of my own sin or my history, I have actually said things are not sin that are. I repent. I admit that you have the right to call things what you call them. And I will start living under that. In Jesus' name, forgive me. And then all of us need to pray this if you're a Christian this morning. Holy Spirit, come. Give us a great vision of Christ. His love, his beauty, his power, his magnificence, his holiness. So we would actually say he is enough even to give up the things we love the most. Lord, I pray that you would do this thing, Holy Spirit, that you would teach and remind and imprint on people across this church that they're washed, sanctified, and justified by Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. Would you, Lord Jesus, by the Spirit, do a work that is impossible to preach? Do this thing among us, we ask. We ask this in Jesus' name and we all said... Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.